Section 5 of Whom We Shall Welcome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. Whom We Shall Welcome. Report of the President's Commission on Immigration and Naturalization. Section 5. National Defense. Lack of Manpower Reserves. Our potential needs for immigration should not be judged in terms of peacetime civilian requirements alone. We must also consider our human resources for our national defense and security. This consideration is quite aside from the significance of immigration in terms of the current ideological war between the forces of totalitarianism and the forces of democracy. The significance of immigration in the latter connection will be considered in Chapter 3. Our present manpower position in relation to potential enemies has drastically changed since World War II. In that war, we and our allies had an impressive superiority in numbers over the smaller populations of Germany, Italy, and Japan. Today, the situation is reversed. It is our potential enemies that have a preponderance of manpower and it is we that would have to husband our manpower resources in a general war. The United States Commissioner of Labor Statistics testified before the Commission that the facts of our population growth and structure, quote, emphasize the frequently reiterated statement that, in comparison with countries found within the Soviet orbit, our greatest relative shortage is in manpower resources. Our national self-interest requires that every consideration of our situation, including immigration policies, recognize this paramount fact. Expert testimony to the Commission revealed that the labor force of the Soviet Union, estimated to be some 108 million in 1951, very substantially exceeds ours, which is given by the Bureau of the Census as 66 million in 1951. In addition, the Soviet labor force will increase much more rapidly than ours owing to the high birth rates in Russia before World War II. The strain of war on our manpower would be greater than during World War II, not only because of greater need, but also because the possibilities for rapid expansion of the labor force are much more limited than in 1941. For one thing, we are working longer hours. The average work week in manufacturing was 41.5 hours in October 1951 as compared with 39.4 hours in October 1940. At the outbreak of World War II, we had major reserves that are now either unavailable or available in much smaller quantities. A. The unemployed. B. 
Woman Not Now in the Labor Force, C. Underemployment in Agriculture, and D. Young Workers. Unemployment. In April 1940, at the time of the decennial census, there were 8,360,000 unemployed. By October 1941, some of this reserve had been absorbed in defense effort, but there remained 3,840,000 unemployed. Today, the reserve is almost non-existent. The number of unemployed has sunk to 1,284,000, which is little more than that involved in the normal job turnover. Today we have almost full employment, and no substantial reserve with which to meet a sudden crisis demanding both military and industrial manpower. Woman in the Labor Force A substantial part of manpower needs in World War II were met by bringing some five million additional women into the labor force. In October 1952, there were 1.5 million more women in the labor force than at the peak of war employment in 1944, and the percentage of all women who held jobs was almost as high. In other words, we are now using the potential female labor force almost as fully as we did at the height of World War II a fact all the more remarkable since the baby boom of the past few years has greatly increased the number of young mothers who must stay home to care for small children. The potential labor reserves among women not in the labor force are thus much smaller than in 1941. Underemployment in Agriculture A careful study on underemployment of rural families prepared for the Joint Committee on the Economic Report in the 82nd Congress arrived at the conclusion that there were 2 million underemployed farm operator families in 1945, located primarily on small, unproductive farms in the southeastern states. Seven years ago, these families included a potential addition to the labor force equivalent to two and a half million workers. As indicated, this underemployment in agriculture provided a partial substitute for immigration in meeting the war and post-war needs of industry. Due to mechanization and more efficient farming methods, Additional farm workers are being freed in some areas for other employment, but experience shows that they do not become available to meet agricultural manpower shortages in other parts of the country. Potential further gains to the industrial labor force are becoming more limited, however, as the farm population declines and the reserves are progressively tapped by movement from the farms to the cities. It is a question how much further we could go in wartime without crippling essential agricultural production. Young Workers Young adults are the most flexible part of our labor force, whether in terms of geographical mobility 
or in terms of training for new jobs. This section of the labor force is of crucial importance from the standpoint of defense, whether it is employed in the armed forces or to provide a fluid labor force adaptable to rapidly changing needs. However, our supply of young people is smaller and shrinking, owing to the low birth rates of the Depression years. The number of young people of the forthcoming military ages is declining in the United States. In the 10-year period between 1940 and 1950, there was a drop of 2 million people in the age group 10 to 19 years of age. This and other basic changes in our population structure are adversely affecting human resources at a time when security needs are increasing. Population Structure Certain unfavorable trends in our population structure may adversely affect our national welfare and security. Growing Older the American population is growing older. Since 1900, the median age has risen from 23 to over 30. Several factors have caused this aging of our people in the last 50 years. We live longer, we have fewer children, and our restrictive immigration policies have cut off a former plentiful source of young adults. Not only has the restriction of immigration reduced the number of immigrants, but in addition, its preferences and categories favor older persons. Normal immigration is heavily concentrated in the young adult ages. Prior to immigration restrictions, over three-fourths of our immigrants were in the highly productive age group 16 to 44 and they were particularly concentrated in the age group 16 to 29. As a result, immigration brought us more producers than consumers, and more workers than dependents. It brought us a ready-made labor force that cost us nothing in terms of rearing and education. Because of this concentration in the young adult ages, even a comparatively small increase in immigration could bring about an important increase in the young labor force. This fact is illustrated even by the recent Displaced Persons Program, in which a special effort was made to move whole families. The roughly 400,000 persons admitted were a young and growing addition to our population. Over half, 51%, were in the prime working ages of 20 to 44, as compared with only 37% in the United States population as a whole. Less than a fifth, 19%, were over 45, as compared with 28% in the total United States population. An aging population means that we have more older people, retired persons, and disabled, who must be supported by persons in the working ages. As the average age of a population goes up, the burden of old age dependency grows, and the taxes necessary to support the aged increase. 
At the same time, the labor force is more and more made up of older workers who lack the adaptability required to meet many essential economic needs. Finally, the baby boom of the last few years has meant a great increase in child dependency at a time when our young labor force is shrinking, thus further increasing the burden on the people in the working ages. These developments would not be serious in a peacetime economy as productive as ours. The older worker and older citizen has much to contribute to the nation in stability, judgment, and experience. But the effect of our present dearth of young adults is of serious consequences to our national defense and security. Changes in the age structure of the United States are shown in Figure 3. In the next few years, the United States will have a deficit of young men and women, chiefly as a result of the low birth rate in the Depression decade of 1930 to 1940. Without more immigration, only 20% of the United States population in 1955 will be in the ages 15 to 29. Larger immigration would tend to fill this important gap in our population structure. In 1925 to 1929, the last period of normal immigration in the United States, 55% of the immigrants were in the ages 15 to 29. The crucial age group for military service, the people in the age bracket of 18 to 24, is declining and will be declining during the next few years. The number of men annually reaching the military age of 18 is now 200,000 less than in 1940. The number of men available for induction and military service under present laws will be comparatively low during most of the decade. If we will let it, immigration in the next few years could provide a valuable supplement to this shrinking manpower at the critical ages of prime military importance. More Women Than Men During our entire history, until 1944, the United States had more men than women. This is no longer true. In 1900, there were 105 men to every 100 women. By 1944, the balance had changed, and by 1950, there were only 98 men to every 100 women. By 1950, we had 1,030,000 more women than men. Much of this excess is in the normal marriageable ages of 20 to 44, where we have 900,000 more women than men. Restrictive immigration laws have played a major part in this fundamental change in our population. Since 1820, immigration has contributed a very high percentage of men to this country. In the period of free immigration, from 1820 to 1921, there were 150 men to 100 women among those admitted to the United States. This same pattern of more men than women prevailed among persons admitted under the Displaced Persons Program, 
even though there was a conscious and deliberate effort to move families as a whole. Under the Displaced Persons Act, over 119 men were admitted for each 100 women. The effect of restrictive immigration are evident in the following table, which shows the percentages of male and female immigrants in the five decades of this century. Table 2. Proportion of Males and of Females Among Immigrants, 1901 to 1950. Years, 1901 to 1910. Percent males, 69.8. Percent females, 30.2. Years, 1911 to 1920. Percent males, 63.5. Percent females, 36.5. Years, 1921 to 1930. Percent males, 55.6. Percent females, 44.4. Years, 1931 to 1940. Percent males, 43.4. Percent females, 56.6. Point six. Years, 1941 to 1950. Percent males, 33.8. Percent females, 66.2. Two. The effects of restrictions in the 1921 and 1924 Quota Acts were already observable in the 20s. When the Restrictive National Origins Quota Law took effect in 1929, the number of men entering the United States as immigrants dropped very considerably below the number of women. This was due to the fact that small quotas tend to be filled by wives and relatives of earlier immigrants who have quota preferences as opposed to new male immigrants who predominate in normal overseas immigration. Whereas previously as much as two-thirds of the immigrants were men, now as much as two-thirds are women. Thus, immigration played an important part prior to the Restrictive Act of 1924, which went into effect in 1929, in maintaining a numerical superiority of men over women in the United States. Since 1929, it has contributed to a changed pattern. The changing sex ratios in our population and the growing surplus of women can have serious repercussions. The effect upon our labor force, upon the number of wage earners supporting families, and upon our available military reserves is obvious. The social and moral effects of reduced marriage possibilities for American women can be of the greatest significance. A renewal of a more substantial volume of normal immigration would tend to redress this growing imbalance in the American population. Larger immigration would tend to fill gaps in our population structure. Absorptive Capacity The Commission does not believe 
that it is advisable to base our immigration policy wholly on the specific needs of the United States for more manpower. Other considerations are equally, if not primarily, compelling, such as our humanitarian traditions, our foreign policy, our security needs. However, our manpower needs do have important relevance to what American immigration policy ought to be, and the Commission's studies indicate that our present immigration policies are a serious barrier to the fulfillment of those needs. The restriction of immigration in the 1920s was due largely to a pessimistic view of America's future. The Commission's belief, from the testimony at its hearings and from other information available to it, is that the United States now has and will continue to have a dynamic, expanding, and flexible economy needing more people, and will be fully capable of absorbing a reasonable increase in our present maximum immigration quota. In the past, immigration gave us our most important resource, our people. There is every indication that we have not reached, nor are we likely in the foreseeable future to reach, the point at which new immigration will no longer contribute to our further growth, strength, and prosperity. The United States is not overpopulated. We are now a nation of 157 million people. The productive capacity of our country is rising rapidly today, perhaps as rapidly as at any time in our history. Our average level of living is the highest in the world, higher than it has ever been before, and it is moving forward despite the effects of war, of a massive defense effort, and of our continued population growth. This is not a picture of overpopulation. A report of the immigration section of the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco stated as follows, quote, During the past six decades, production has increased by nearly eight times. We nearly doubled our annual production every two decades. In other words, our production has risen nearly 100% in 20 years whereas our population has risen only about 20%. Our production growth has always exceeded our population growth. End quote. And the future looks bright. Our resources and our food production are adequate to meet any reasonable increase in population. All indications are that our material standards will continue to rise. The President's Materials Policy Commission reached its conclusion as to the adequacy of our national resources in the light of an anticipated population increase of 27% from 1950 to 1975, a doubling of the gross national product in that 25-year period, a decrease of 15% in hours worked, and an increase in the material standard of life. These assumptions would mean, for example, a 62.5% rise in the number of passenger cars in use, an increase of from 62.5% to 
to 87.5% in the number of telephones in use and other increases in like measure. As for the nation's ability to feed its population, there is no reasonable doubt that in the foreseeable future we can have food for all our people. The Assistant Secretary of Agriculture testifying before the Commission said, quote, I have no fear that the American population will run short of food. End quote. Separate studies by the Department of Agriculture, the Land Grant Colleges, and the President's Materials Policy Commission all indicate that with the full use of the best known and already proven farm practices, farm production can be raised sufficiently to meet all demands likely to be made by the American population of 1975. Therefore, on the basis of reliable evidence, the Commission has no misgivings of the ability of the American farmer to provide in the foreseeable future an adequate food supply for a well-fed nation. The United States can absorb more than the present maximum quota. Ours is a healthy, and at present, a rapidly growing population. Since the war's end in 1945, we have already added 17 million people, nine-tenths as a result of the excess of births over deaths, only one-tenth from immigration. Estimates of future population by the United States Bureau of the Census suggest continued growth, although not necessarily at the present rates. The medium estimate indicates a United States population of 171 million in 1960 and 190 million in 1975, assuming immigration at the present levels and a considerable drop-off from the present baby boom. Of the 14 million prospective growth between 1952 and 1960, less than one-eighth would be due to foreign immigration in its present volume. The population is growing at a rate of over two and a half million per year. Obviously, in this circumstance, the effect of immigration under a quota ceiling of either 154,000 or 250,000 will be a minor factor in the general population growth. Other countries have shown that a far higher proportion of immigrants can be absorbed. Australia, whose total population is about that of New York City, has been absorbing immigration at an average of 134,000 per year. This is a rate of immigration in relation to population 20 times that provided by our present quota ceilings. In Chapter 4, the Commission recommends a maximum ceiling of some 250,000 quota immigrants each year, based upon one-sixth of one percent of the 1950 population of the United States. The evidence before the Commission indicates that such figure is well within the present safe limits of absorption into the American economy for the foreseeable future. The attitude of organized labor is significant in this regard. 
in testimony before the house committee on immigration and naturalization in 1946 the congress of industrial organizations cio stated quote, naturally a labor organization representing six million american workers would not be inclined to support measures which would threaten the job security of its own members however the cio realizes from past experience that immigration is automatically checked in periods of unemployment while it rises in periods of prosperity that in the past immigrants have contributed in innumerable ways to the wealth and well-being of this country that a large proportion of immigrants are not potential job seekers but women and children that new blood in industry, agriculture, business, and the professions enriches our national life, and that the best and most enlightened thought on this subject opposes arbitrary, prejudiced, and superficial legislation to curtail immigration into the United States. End quote. During legislative discussions on the Displaced Persons Act, labor leaders indicated that an annual immigration of 250,000 could have no adverse effect on our economy. The late William Green, then president of the American Federation of Labor, AFL, testified, quote, We do not believe that the admission of as small a number as 400,000 over a period of four years in addition to the quotas one hundred and fifty four thousand annually will seriously affect our employment or unemployment problem the late philip murray then president of the cio presented a statement which said in part quote, let me say for the record that we in the CIO can find absolutely no basis in fact or reason for the fear that admitting 100,000 immigrants a year for four years, in addition to the quotas 154,000, would jeopardize the jobs of American citizens. I do not think it is the true friends of labor who will argue that our economy cannot stand the addition of less than one-tenth of one percent of the number of our population annually for four years without creating unemployment. A factor that must be borne in mind is that our immigration laws have a built-in break, so to speak, which can protect the United States against such difficulties. The provision which authorizes the denial of a visa to a person likely to become a public charge has in past experience, particularly in the Depression of the 1930s, proved to be an effective protective device in this regard. Furthermore, the experience of the Displaced Persons Commission indicates that a sensitive resettlement program could bring 400,000 people into the United States, keep them out of areas of labor surplus, and direct or route them to areas of labor shortages. In February 1950, 
that commission reported as follows, quote, the impact of displaced persons on aggregate unemployment in this country has been insignificant. Even in critical unemployment areas, displaced persons have been a negligible factor in the degree of unemployment. End quote. Normal experience has shown that only about half of the immigrants coming to the United States go into the labor force. Since the total population grew two-thirds between 1920 and 1950, an increase of immigration from 154,000 to 250,000 per year could scarcely present serious problems of absorption. On the other hand, it could, one, provide by 1960 an addition of 500,000 to 1 million in our manpower of military age, two, relieve special manpower shortages of importance both for the needs of defense and of an expanding peacetime economy, and three, continue to supply us with the talents and skills from abroad that have so strengthened and enriched our civilization. End of section five.